0: well amen huh it's tremendous thanks so much clark for that take your bible and open to romans chapter eight romans chapter eight we're continuing here in our study of this uh, great portion of scripture romans chapter eight let me begin by reading our text here starting uh chapter eight verse one There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Now, we've spent a considerable amount of time looking here at this great uh, introductory paragraph in the 8th chapter of the Book of Romans, and uh, this uh, time and the words that we're studying are meant to bring us a tremendous uh, amount of joy and encouragement to our hearts, us who have been justified. Uh, Justification is the opposite of condemnation. And and so the, the Bible, as you know, is a book in general that is filled with a tremendous amount of condemnation. Uh, from the beginning to the end. One writer says this, it condemns without mercy and without compassion all those who know not God and those who do not obey God and those who don't love the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man born into this world is a fallen. Every man born into this world is an object of God's uh, wrath. Uh, We have inherited a damning condition known as sin, uh, and that condemning condition uh, makes us all part of a fallen race. Uh, Miserable, overpowered by sin. It says in Romans three and ten, "There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one." Verse twenty-three that chapter says, "For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God." Right, all of us. None of us escapes. Uh, Born into this world, we're born into corruption uh, that is humanly incurable. Uh, A corruption that left to its own will damn us eternally. Uh, corruption that makes life in time miserable because of sin's power over us. And not only that, uh, born into this world, we're part of a fallen human race that is under the power of Satan. Uh, I read that this morning out of Ephesians chapter 2. We're under the control of the prince of the power of the air. We're dominated by sin inwardly, dominated by evil outwardly, Uh, sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath. And on top of that, Uh, Romans chapter 8. Later on the chapter tells us that the entire creation itself is subject to futility. The entire, uh, uh, um, the entire uh, creation is uh, in slavery to corruption. Because of the reality of sin, the physical world reels under the negative effects of sin, the harmful consequences of sin. It is a world full of disease and, and uh, death and corruption, a world full of natural disasters, a world full of heartache, a world full of trouble, and a world full of misery everywhere. Job says it like this, Job 5, verse 7, it says, Man is born into trouble as sparks fly upward. So there's no peace in this fallen world corrupted by sin. And because we're a part of this fallen race, the Bible says that we are heirs of judgment. Terrifying verse in Hebrews chapter 10 says, There's a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So mercy or judgment without mercy, pain without compassion, punishment eternally is what a fallen race deserves, what a fallen race is headed for. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 calls it the second death, uh, which is also the lake of fire. That's mankind's condition in a fallen world. And the Bible declares on a whole uh, that reality. You start at the book of uh, uh, Genesis, goes all the way to the book of the Revelation, saying that same message over and over again. And in the near context of the book, we're studying the book of Romans, it also restates that reality at the beginning of the book the desperate condition of all mankind, born into a, a fallen world, the natural condition of every fallen man, part of a fallen race under the wrath of God, facing eternal condemnation by God himself, and living in this world with all of its tendent problems, a life of misery, a life with no hope, a life with no ability to change one's condition in and of ourselves, uh, no, uh, no way to alter the inevitable judgment that is coming towards us that we have earned that we deserve because of our fallen condition before god now it's in the backdrop of that reality that you come to romans chapter 8 verse 1 the wonderful good news of what god himself has declared therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus Amen? amen apart from christ born into this world natural men born into this world are born under condemnation under the damning sentence of eternal death, under the damning sentence of eternal punishment. Again, with no way out. No way to solve our problem, awaiting the just eternal execution uh, that we all deserve. God comes along and God gives his law, his perfect holy law, his law that is just and good, uh, a law that represents the best of uh, the rules, the best of standard of uh, standards for living, uh, principles of righteousness that, man, that God tells man, if you do these things, then you can live. But the reality is no man can do those things. No man can keep God's law because they are dominated by this thing called sin. And all the law did is condemn men. All the law does is expose man's inability and man's wickedness uh, to uh, uh, obey God, his inability to obey God, uh, exciting man's fallen desire to do more evil. Uh, intensifying sin that 's what the, the law does. we saw that back in chapter Seven of Romans, and even with the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't change the condition of our condemnation. Jesus, the good, the perfect, the righteous one, all the things that he said, all the things that he taught, uh, the demonstration of his power could not alter our condemnation one bit. John three and nineteen This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So who is Jesus Christ? He is the light of the world, right? He's come into the world as God's light. Uh, But just him coming into the world uh, alone uh, could not bring men out of condemnation, out of their condition, their fallenness and sin. What Christ did, the light coming into the world, actually uh, plunged men deeper into their condemnation. Why? Because men love their sin. The light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Right? So all he did is just lead men deeper into condemnation. But that was not God's desire. That is not God's desire for Christ. John 3, verse 17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world, not to condemn the world, but to provide the world a way of escape, to provide the world salvation. But it wasn't in the life of Christ. It wasn't in the teaching of Christ. It wasn't in the miraculous works of Christ that could solve man's problem. Put a little mark uh, there, come right back to it, but just turn back a couple pages. We read it this morning, but I want you to see it again in this context. Go back to chapter 5. The only way to solve man's problem is uh, is the death of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, here it is, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us, that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. It was through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that the problem of sin is taken care of. It was through the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his substitutionary death on our behalf, we have been removed from the realm of condemnation. We now stand in the realm of grace. We now stand who believe by faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone. We stand in Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So it's all of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ who stands in in our place. Christ who comes to pay the unpayable debt. To set us free from condemnation, to set us free from the enslavement to sin, to set us free from bondage to unrighteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ, who sets us free from the power of the evil one and from the terrifying expectation of judgment to come. Again, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's this great, monumental truth that we've been looking at, the privilege, we've had the privilege of looking at it over and over again. This wonderful truth, tremendous comfort for the true Christian. Again, the key is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is everything. Again, in our natural state... We are uh, under God's curse, under God's condemnation. You can kind of work your way back there to to Romans chapter 8. We are uh, under the curse of God, under the wrath of God. uh, We find ourselves in that position because we're fallen in Adam. But Christ has come into the world to bear the curse for us. Galatians three and thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Again, Second Corinthians five twenty one. God makes him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the substitutionary death of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by virtue of our union with Christ, with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we who are justified by faith, forgiven our sin, are again at peace with God. We've been taken out of the realm of condemnation. We've been placed in the realm of grace by God's kindness through the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we will ultimately not be punished for our sin. Amen? We will ultimately not ever be judged for our sin because the punishment and the judgment has already fallen on Christ. It has been borne by the person of Jesus Christ. He's paid the price in full. And then he's risen from the dead to show that God accepted his sacrifice as payment in full. And because Jesus Christ has paid the debt, Jesus Christ has defeated sin, defeated death, and risen to new life, we who are in union with him, we who are in Christ, he allows us to walk in newness of life, right? A new life because of the risen, resurrected Christ. Therefore, we are again exempt from final judgment. Therefore, we are eternally secure in our relationship with God. We don't have to worry about our salvation because it's not dependent on our efforts, as I said this morning. Our salvation has been won by the mercy of God, the grace of God, the work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reality. That is reality, verse 1. Reality, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason follows the reality. The reason follows the reality, verse 2. For the law of, spirit, uh, the, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of the Spirit of life really is the gospel, the gospel of grace, found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He frees those who believe in him from the law of sin and death, right? The person uh, uh, that's the person of the Holy Spirit who brings us to life uh, through the person of Christ by way of the gospel. I remember I told you when we first did the first introductory uh, lesson in this uh, eighth chapter uh, it, it, Paul really puts the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really is on display. He, he's the main character, the main person in the chapter. He's mentioned 19 times in, in the first 27 verses of Romans 8. What's significant about that, he was only mentioned once in the entire previous, uh, entire book of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, Romans, the first seven chapters. He's mentioned once in chapter 5, verse 5. And then all of a sudden he appears here in chapter 8, and the focus is put upon him. Uh, the wonderful reality, again, of the salvation that we have by God through Christ under the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. So, again, it's the Holy Spirit who comes into our life, the Holy Spirit who awakens us to the gospel, who opens our ears, to, uh, un- uh, blinds our eyes so we can hear and see the truth. He takes us who are dead in trespasses and sin. He makes us alive in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who frees us from that past power that once had dominion over our life. He says here in verse 2, the law of sin and death. Right? He frees us. The person of the Holy Spirit frees us from our past, uh, the the past dominion of sin and death in our life. And now the power, the presence, and the sanctifying uh, work, uh, the sanctifying influence of the person of the Holy Spirit is now a reality in our life. Of those who are justified by faith well how did it happen what was the route its substitution verse 3 for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh god did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh one of the greatest statements in the bible on substitutionary atonement of christ right the very heart of the gospel. Again, the wonderful truth that Christ has paid the penalty on behalf of every person who would ever turn from their sin and trust him as Lord and Savior. We have been set free from the law of sin and death because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And we have been studying uh, uh, in our time here in the book of Romans, we've been studying the law and what the law does and what the law can't do. We've seen that the law can stir up sin. We've seen that the law can reveal sin, but the law can show us how sinful we really are. The law can convict us of sin, but the law can never save us from its penalty. The law can never save us from its penalty. All uh, the law could do is convict and stir up. And the law can never really break sin's power. Sins tyranny over us. Galatians 3 and 10 says, As many of the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Verse 21 of that chapter, Galatians 3 verse 21, If a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. But there's never been a law given that can impart life. Because all the law does is produce condemnation. It produces death because of our failure of obedience to god's law right none of us abides by god's law none of us abide by all things written in the book of the law so again you've known persons people like this in your life i'm sure who run back under the law who run back under certain systems if i do this thing or don't do that thing then i can make myself right with god even people who said they have come to faith in christ and for some reason they revert back that's foolishness all they're doing is placing themselves under a curse because the, the the standard is absolute perfection we've talked about that And the only perfection, the only perfect one, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to run ourselves back under a curse. We want to run ourselves to mercy, and mercy is only found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the sinful corruption of our flesh makes, uh, uh, makes the law powerless to save us. Again, all the law can do is reveal our imperfection. All the law can do is condemn us. The law can never justify a man. Romans 3 and 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin so all the law does is bring condemnation and again the law can never break sin's power over us the law makes demands of obedience the law knows no mercy the law gives no power to obey the law can can uh, condemn us but it cannot condemn sin it devastates the sinner the law devastates the sinner it does that but the law can't deal with the problem of sin The the law can't destroy sin. Uh, Again, the law reveals sin, but it can't destroy it. To have sin destroyed, ultimately, we need to have somebody who can stand in our place, someone who's powerful enough to deal a death blow against sin and to doom it to destruction. That is the person of Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Again, we're all corrupt in Adam. Therefore, our flesh renders imperfect obedience to God's law. It's an utter impossibility for us to obey God's law perfectly. So what we couldn't do, how we couldn't help ourselves, God did. God interceded. God, who is rich in mercy, interceded. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son. Again, the law can never break the power of sin over us. The law could not give us the power to obey. The law, again, can't save us from its penalty. So again, all the law can do is condemn. It can never justify. The law can never provide for us the righteousness we need to stand in God's presence. But again, Jesus Christ can, and Jesus Christ does. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son. Again, we need a substitute. We need somebody who can condemn sin, someone who can defeat sin utterly. Again, the law can't do it. Religious rituals, religious ceremonies of whatever kind, they can't do it. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So all that does is drive us to our need of a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a a Savior who can bring judgment on sin. And that's, again, what Jesus Christ did. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. Here it is. He condemned sin in the flesh. So God, in his kindness and his tremendous love, sent the only perfect substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God did this sending his own son, who is fully God, fully man, absolutely sinless. Again, the text says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. It does not say sinful flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh. Is God who becomes incarnate, God who literally takes on our flesh, not just a spirit being, but literally our flesh. He comes as close to sin as possible without becoming sinful himself. Right? He takes on the likeness of our sinful flesh. We talked about this last time in the history of the church, the great theological errors of uh, Arianism and Docetism that have spawned out of an improper understanding of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if he had not been an absolutely perfect God, he himself without sin and not also perfect man, he could never have been made a sin offering. If he had not been God's own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he could not have been the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for fallen mankind in order to make reconciliation with God. If he had not been the perfect God-man, he would have needed a sacrifice for his own sin, but he had no sin because he is perfect God in flesh. God who literally and physically put on our flesh. God who literally and physically became a man. God who, listen, literally died because the wages of sin is death. God becomes incarnate as an offering for sin so that he can come to die. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. Right, so the sinless Christ becomes sin the sin offering. He takes upon himself all of the guilt and the penalty and the death for our sins, of the death of all who would believe upon him in order to condemn sin in the flesh. And sin once once condemned the believer, but now the sinless one has shown up in the history, and he condemns sin. And he delivered the believer from sin's power, sin's penalty. He delivers the believer from the consequences of sin. Christ comes, and he destroys sin. He defeats sin. He condemns sin. Again, think about it like this. Sin gathers up all of its power and comes at Christ. But then Christ bursts forth from the grave three days later because sin could not hold its captive, its prey captive, right? The perfect substitute showed his power over sin, his power over death. The perfect substitute had been sent, and he condemned sin. He defeated sin. So the person of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes our victor. Again, both over the realm of sin and death. The holy God incarnate, the one who lived a life, right? He didn't just come for a day. He lived a life, an entire lifetime. And He resisted every temptation of Satan. He denied sin in every aspect of his humanity and his earthly life, defeated sin totally. And then he defeated sin ultimately by raising triumphantly from the grave again on the third day. And sin and death and hell, they came, they threw their best at him, and he defeated them all. He destroyed sin at the cross. Therefore, sin is compelled to yield its supremacy to the victor, and the victor is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we get it. I mean, we look around the world and go, well, okay, I got that on a theological level. But I look around the world, and I see that sin is still running its course, right? Sin is still running its course in time. But the truth is, while sin is still running its course in time, the sentence on sin has already been set in motion, And its ultimate doom and destruction is sure. And it will come at Christ's second coming. I want you to put a mark there in your Bible because we're coming right back. But I want you to turn over to the book of Revelation. I want you to see it. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. We'll jump in at verse 11. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has the name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe, verse 16, and on his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Drop down to verse 20. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, And those who were worshipping his image, and the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Turn over to chapter 20, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. Verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sin and death and hell and all of evil has been completely dealt with by Christ on the cross. And when Jesus Christ returns, as he does here in Revelation 19, when he returns... He will gather all those who are evil and cast them from his presence forever and then sin will be completely eternally eliminated from god's presence, so it was at the cross where the doom of sin was was certain it was at the the cross where uh, the doom of sin is spelled out or or uh, carried out, the execution, uh, the judgment rendered upon uh, uh, sin and death uh, on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ defeated death. Jesus Christ condemned death. It's still running its course in time, but the sentence has been set in motion, and its ultimate doom and destruction is sure when Jesus Christ comes back. He is the victor. And he, because he is the victor, he will be victorious. And because he is the victor, it's good news for us in Christ to know that we will have ultimate victory over sin and death. That one day these bodies will be free from sin. That one day we'll be free from this world of corruption. That one day we'll spend an, an eternity uh, away from the presence of sin because it's been condemned and finally dealt with in Christ. Amen? Now back to Romans 8. Again, the reality is there's no condemnation, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The reason, justification, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. The route, substitution, verse 3, for what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what are the results? What are the results? Verse 4, it's sanctification. Verse four, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse four is a wonderful truth about sanctification. It's wonderful truth about righteousness. It's wonderful truth about holiness. Not just the righteousness that God gives us at salvation, but he's really talking about a redemptive righteousness. He's he's talking about a righteousness, again, that is not just an imputed righteousness at salvation, but he's talking about a righteousness that is imparted, not just credited to our account, but given to us. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled, and here these two little words are very important, in us. In us. That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us is really the key to understanding what Paul's saying here in verse 4. Now, the reason that God sent Christ into the world is that we couldn't save ourselves. Right? We couldn't save ourselves by anything we did. We couldn't save ourselves by keeping God's law because we can't keep God's law. But the purpose of God sending the Son into the world was in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Again, because of our weakness, because of our, the sinfulness of our flesh, again, the law couldn't justify us. The law couldn't free us from condemnation, but Jesus Christ could as the substitutionary sacrifice. So again, Christ comes and he stands in our place, takes on our humanity, stands in our place. He pays the penalty of our sin uh, uh, through himself. He becomes our sin bearer. God judges our sin in Christ through Christ's body on Calvary's cross. And as Christ bore our sin, Uh, We are credited his righteousness. His righteousness is credited to us, imputed to us. And therefore, because of the person of Christ, we are justified before God, declared righteous and not guilty, positively righteous because of the work of Christ. But that's not it. That's not all. That's justification. Justification alone does not lead to the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. So for the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled in us... We need a positional righteousness. Not just a positional righteousness, we need an actual righteousness. And that's what we have in Christ. We have the imparted righteousness of Christ. So again, I said this previously, that Christ was not sent into the world just to save us in our sin, but he was sent into the world to save us from our sin. From our sin. For the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled fully fulfilled in us means more than just a vicarious sufferer, more than just a vicarious substitute that frees us from the condemnation of our sin. For the righteous requirement of the law to be fulfilled, fully fulfilled in us, means that we must now, listen, leave our sin. We have to leave our sin. Because that's always the New Testament teaching on justification. Justification that comes by faith alone. But justification does not give us the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. It does give us that, but not the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. Justification gives us an actual righteousness that enables us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live our life correctly before God, to live our life before God in a holy manner, fleeing from sin and walking in holiness and walking in righteousness. Because if there's no condemnation positionally, then there has to be, there must be holy living on a practical level. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, listen, in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the definition of a Christian. The definition of a Christian is one who does not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's sanctification. That's sanctification practically lived out in life, in time. That's the result of justification. Again, a practical righteousness. God doesn't just save us so that we can do whatever we want to do, knowing he saves us so that we can have his Spirit put within us so that we can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us so again now under no condemnation now part of the justified part of the redeemed we've not been redeemed to do wrong we have been redeemed so that in the first time in our life we can actually do the right thing for the first time in our life we can actually obey God obey God's command obey God's law that is holy just and good So the believer, the one who, the genuine believer, the one who's united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been justified, now is empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, and that person does not walk according to the flesh. Now obviously the word walk is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a habit of life, habitual way of life, a habitual bent of life. Uh, um, you've seen trees right that are uh, stand out against the wind and the tree starts like this but the wind continues to blow against the bent of the pressure on that tree makes that tree go in that kind of direction right that's the idea here: the bent of your life the walk of your life the lifestyle the christian the genuine christian does not walk according to the flesh right but he walks according to the spirit uh, examples: uh, Luke one, Zacharias, his wife Elizabeth. Uh, Luke one, verse six. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That's the bent of their life, obeying God. Ephesians four seventeen. I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that listen. You no longer. Uh, you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. What's the bent of their life? Well, it's the futility of their mind. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They become callous. They give themselves over to sensuality, to the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 20, Ephesians 4, verse 20, but you did not learn Christ this way. The bent of your life is different than the unbeliever. The walk of your life. 1 John 1 and 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sins. So the word walk, again, the bent of our life, the, the bent of our life in Christ is towards righteousness. <clears throat> it's towards obedience to God, towards the commandments of God. It's walking in the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the word according just means in accordance with, conformity to, corresponding to. So the one who's justified in Jesus Christ does not live his life or her life in conformity to the flesh, but rather that person lives in conformity to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you're a genuine believer, then you have the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. And if that's true, excuse me, then you're walking in the Spirit. The bent of your life is always towards righteousness. The bent of your life is always towards the thing, the things of the Spirit. But guess what? They're on the other side of that equation, if the bent of your life is not towards the things of the Spirit, if the bent of your life is not towards the things of Christ, then you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying here. Because when you come from the realm of no con- of condemnation to the realm of no condemnation, when God saves you and God redeems your life in Christ, it's not just a legal action only. It's a reality. Because you're not, and I'm not, we're not just Christians in the books, as it were. If you're a Christian, the person of the Holy Spirit has been uh, sent to you. There's, he has been implanted within you. Uh, Christ is in you. You're in Christ. The person of the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and now he produces in us a righteousness, God's righteousness, in accordance to his law, God's law that is holy, just, and good. That the requirement of the law might be filled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but, again, according to the Spirit, with conformity, correspondence to Now, what you need to know there, that statement is a statement of fact. It's in the indicative. It's not an imperative. It's not a command you're going to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. It's a statement of fact. It's in the indicative. It's a statement of reality. The statement of reality is the true Christian does not walk according to the flesh. And corresponding to that truth, that statement, be that every true believer walks according to the Spirit. Both of these truths, categorically undeniable. No exceptions. Every true believer is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That, again, is what he's saying. For what the law could not do, God did. So that, or in order that, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Forgiven of our sins. Yeah, we got that part. But also it's a requirement of holy living. A reality of holy living. Listen, if God saved us, took us into his family, and made us his children, would you not think that God would expect us to look like his children and not like the children of the devil? If God would take us and save us and make us his bride then would Christ not want a bride who is just positionally righteous, but wouldn't he want a bride that's actually righteous, just as he himself is righteous? So Christ not only bore the penalty of our sin, Christ actually broke sin's dominating power in our lives as well, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. That we should no longer produce fruit unto death, but that we should produce fruit unto God. And it's the work of the triune God that does that. It's the work of the triune God that frees us from sin's penalty and sin's power. God the Father from eternity past decreed the plan of redemption. God the Son becomes the vicarious sacrifice that uh, would allow us all to uh, uh, all righteousness to be fulfilled in us or to be fully met in us. And God, the Holy Spirit, again, who becomes the agent of our sanctification, it's the Holy Spirit who accomplishes what the law wasn't able to do because he's taken up permanent presence within us, and the bent of our life is towards righteousness, towards holiness, towards uh, uh, the, the things of the Spirit. So again, when we're saved, we're saved unto righteousness. Right? What are we being saved from? Well, we're being saved from unrighteousness, and we're saved, we're being saved to righteousness. I mean, think back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who mourn, 5 verse 4, it's really blessed as those who mourn for, uh, really mourn over their sin. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Christ warns in verse 20, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's standard is righteous, righteousness. We're saved, we're saved under Righteousness. He wants his children to look like him. He, he wants them not just with a positional or imputed righteousness that covers their sin. He actually wants them sinless. Right? He wants them to be righteous in the terms of behaving well. He, he, he wants those who are, as it said in Ephesians 1, 4, but it this morning, he wants those who are holy and without blame before him. And again, that's who we are in Christ. And God wants us to live the reality of who we are in Christ. Because again, that's the goal of justification, that we would be holy, the right, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And again, God's law demands righteousness. And again, God does that through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Because we couldn't do it on our own because of the weakness of our flesh. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh— God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So it's the person of the Holy Spirit who takes us uh, personally into that reality and he personally turns us, uh, which is in uh, position, positional, uh, uh, to an actual practical righteousness. Right? He, he gives us the position, and then the righteousness of Christ is something that he enables us to act on and something that he enables us, empowers us to fulfill. There's a, a picture I'm borrowing from somebody I saw, and I thought this was helpful. Listen, if, if somebody made you a king, it's one thing to put on a crown, right? Putting on a crown doesn't make you a king. But if somebody made you a king, then you probably ought to what? Act like a king, Right? If you've been made a king, then you need to act like a king. If you have been made a child of God, then again, you need to look like a child of God. If you've been set free from the law of sin and death, then you need to live righteously, is what he's saying. again, think back to Romans 6, right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, the answer is you can't. If you've been set free, you can't live in that reality because that's no longer the reality for you even so consider verse 11 even so consider yourself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus and the word consider there is not to consider like you're just thinking about this I'm just I'm pondering this statement it's a tremendous statement no it's considered in the, st- in the sense of it's a truth that needs to be acted on because it's a reality that's now true of you if you're a king act like a king if you're a child of God act and then act like a child of God because that's who you are in Christ dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on in that chapter, verse 12 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Again, if you've been crowned a king, live like a king. If you've been set free from the law of sin and death, then you need to live like freed men. You need to live out the reality of who you now are in Christ. It's not optional. It's a reality, a command. The command is not to let sin reign in our mortal body. The command is not to present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but to God as those alive from the dead. Chapter, or verse 18 of Romans 6 says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity, to lawlessness, resulting in your further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome of eternal life. It's the, the call to holiness, because holiness is what results from justification, because that's justification's goal. Holiness is justification's goal. Holiness consisting in fulfilling the lost... And The the laws just demand holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit, and holiness is a reality, a reality that's mandatory. Now, we don't believe in or teach the doctrine of false doctrine of entire sanctification on the earth. I've mentioned that before. We don't teach that a man can attain to perfection here in uh, life. He can't attain to a perfect walk in the holiness here in life and time. We don't teach that a man can reach a point where he stops sinning because we realize there's a battle with indwelling sin going on. That's Romans chapter 7. On the other hand, we do not believe that the Bible teaches that holiness would be a nice thing or a good thing to shoot for. Yeah, you know, do your best. We believe that the Bible teaches that holiness is demanded of those who are justified. So where do you get that from? Well, how about 1 Peter 1.15? But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself and all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's where our life has to be lived in Christ, in holiness, not just positionally, but practically, the matter of uh, our life uh, working out on a practical level. God calls us, God saves us, God pardons our sin by virtue of the substitutionary death of Christ, but he's not finished with us. Now he indwells us with the person of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we must be walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We must be living out the reality of who we now are in Christ. Turn over real real quickly to to 1 Peter. 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Starting there in verse 9. First Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Holiness is the result of justification. The call is to practically live out who we are, to live in holiness because God is perfect placed his holy spirit within us titus 2 and 11 i'll just read it to you for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation to all men this is at verse 12 titus 2 verse 12 instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age we have been redeemed unto holiness to live righteously and godly in the present age And we have to go beyond just talking about salvation. We have to be fulfilling God's holy moral law. And we can do that through Christ, through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. When people profess faith in Christ and they live their lives that are indistinguishable from those who make no claim upon Christ, for those who are non-Christians, when people who... Profess faith in Christ, live their lives that are indist, uh, indistinguishable from the world, yet at least they have to explore the option that perhaps that profession is not genuine, that they're not actually who they claim to be. Because Christ doesn't just make us positionally holy, He actually begins the work of conforming us to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment we believe. All right now I'll go back to Romans 8 and make sure you're there. I want to show you this. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5 for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit for the mindset on the flesh is death but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards god it does not subject itself to the law of god it is not even able to do so and those who are in the flesh cannot please god however verse 9 you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Right? So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, if you are saved, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, you are completely different than who you used to be. You're completely different from the unregenerate people around you. Just like they do now, you once walked in the power of your flesh, according to your flesh, when you were under the dominion of the sinful flesh, under the direction of the flesh, but as believers, that's no longer true of you. And you need to walk according to who you are. How do you walk? Moment by moment, putting one foot in front of the other, moving forward. Moment by moment, daily in your life, moment by moment, now living under the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to what God has commanded. Because that's his desire for you, and that's what he's promised to do to conform you to the image of his son. You know, the Son. A great part of the Christian life, I think, is living the reality of who you now are. Realizing what God says is true of you. Steve Lawson offers uh, five words that are practically describe how we are to walk according to the power of the Holy Spirit. first word he puts up is Intentional intentional. We must walk intentionally. He says we must be consciously aware of our home, our own human weakness. Therefore, we must purposely yield our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, aware of our need of the power of the Holy Spirit. So intentionally, we must choose to walk according to his power and intentionally rely on his power and intentionally pray for direction, asking for his strength in whatever we're doing whether it be at home or at work or speaking to your spouse or disciplining your children. Consciously aware, intentionally aware of your dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit who now has taken up residence within you and now praying for his strength that you might honor Christ and honor him in all that you do, that you might live in God-honoring ways. The second word that Lawson offers up on how to walk according to the power of the Spirit is continually He means, he he says, there's no time off. We don't get to take a time out. I'll get to it tomorrow. No, you don't get to take a time off. Right? From the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, from the moment you wake up all throughout your day until you lay your head on your pillow and go to sleep, you need to commit to continuously, intentionally walking under the power of the Holy Spirit. Third word is humbly. Humbly. Humbly submitting our lives to the person of the Holy Spirit. Depending upon his power, admitting and confessing our constant need of his help. Right? Because we're still on process, right? We need help. How often? Well, I don't know about for you. For me, it's always. Right? To the nanosecond. I need help always. Intentionally, continually, humbly, forthward, obediently. As God's holy law requires our obedience. Therefore, we have to be obedient from the heart, willingly, joyfully, voluntarily, asking God to enable us to obey his law from the heart. If God gives a simple command and we don't obey the simple command, then we can't expect God to bless our life if we're disobedient. We're talking about it in the new members class just the hour before. Holy Spirit says through the writer of the book of Hebrews, don't forsake the assembly. You know what that means, translating it from the Greek into the English? It means don't forsake the assembly. It's not very difficult guess what a whole lot of people forsake the assembly i told the people in the room i said when i see people forsake the assembly when they were a part of the room and then they're along no longer a part of the room you know what i know i know immediately there's something wrong with them They've caught themselves in some kind of sin or they're caught by some kind of sin because that's what people do who are walking in sin. They don't run to mercy. They want to run away from mercy and they remove themselves from the fellowship because they've got some problem that they don't want to deal with on a biblical manner. When the Bible says don't forsake the assembly, it means show up. Pretty simple. When we're obedient to the word, that's very helpful you want to walk in the power of the holy spirit under his direction you walk intentionally you walk continually you walk humbly you walk obediently to god's word and then the last word he puts forward is prayerfully we're always praying it says to pray without ceasing what does that mean it means to pray without ceasing does that mean to you close your eyes when you're driving down the freeway no that's not what it means lord help me lord help me Again, constantly, continually, throughout the day, give me the power to obey you. Give me the, the power to do what you've asked me to do, to live my life in a way that honors you, a way that glorifies you. I hope that's the prayer of your heart. Every morning you get up and say, Lord, help me to honor you today. Help me to be obedient to you. Help me to to, to live my life in a way that doesn't bring reproach upon you or upon uh, upon Christ. Help me to live in a way that honors and glorifies you always, every moment. And then you pray, and you pray always, you don't ever cease from praying and you you pray that God would help you make the right choices and then when you make the wrong choices you you pray that he would forgive your sin like he's promised that he would do he's faithful and just to do so you know, you pray that you make the right priorities you pray that he would help you to speak to people in a way that honors Christ have you ever wanted to speak to somebody and just tell them what you really thought I don't know about you but I'll be true truthful you know in my flesh there's times I'd like to tell people what I really think but then I stop and think, well, you know, God in his kindness has been so very gracious to me. I need to extend that mercy to other people also. For while they may have offended me on a certain level, uh, the issue of Christ and their salvation is better, more important than uh, the issue of that they've not treated me rightly. So I'll hold my tongue, pray to God, but forgive me for my bad attitude, and pray that I might have an opportunity to speak truth into that person's life that might be an encouragement to them and honoring to Christ, right? So we got to be prayerful always. Consistently powerful, so that we can walk according to the power of the Spirit. Isn't that a good? It took us five weeks to get through the introduction. Might take us a year or two to get rid of the, through the rest of the book. I don't know. But these are just foundational truths to help us live the Christian life. To understand how to live the Christian life to live a life understanding the fact there's there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we've been set free from the law of sin and death by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are able to live righteously and holy lives because we have been set free from that law and of uh, sin and death by the substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now enabled to live holy lives because the person of the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, and therefore we no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God thankful we're thankful for our time together in your word uh, both uh, this morning and this evening we're thankful for uh, the person of the holy spirit whom you have given to us help us to submit our life to him humbly to walk in a manner that's pleasing before you to live holy lives lives that are different from the unregenerate people around us so that people might ask us what is different about us and that we might give uh, have opportunity to give testimony to how good you are and how great Christ is. There's nothing special about us, but everything's special about you. We worship you, we adore you, and we thank you for Christ, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.